Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by neurotologist Dr. Alex Sweeney, and we'll be discussing adult sensory neural hearing loss. Dr. Sweeney, thanks so much for being here. It's an honor to be here, Jason. Thank you. It's kind of in the title, uh, adult sensory neural hearing loss, but could we start with just what the typical presentation is for an adult who presents to your clinic with hearing loss? Sure. Uh, there is, I think, a very stereotypical presentation for adult onset sensory neural hearing loss, but there is also a very wide variety of what we see. I think after the pediatric years, hearing loss can be a, a, a problematic uh, symptom for a variety of different people in a variety of different ways. But most typically, I think what we see is somebody who's older, who's suffering from what we would call presbycusis or literally elder ears, uh, who is presenting perhaps at the suggestion of a loved one in the form of what we would call spousal surveillance, where somebody is actually saying, well, you're not hearing me as well. You've been complaining about this tinnitus for a long time. You need to go see a doctor. Uh, we probably see it more commonly in men than women. But again, it's something that has a tremendous amount of variability in how it presents. And when you first meet these patients, uh, how do you break it down in your mind when you're thinking about different symptoms and onset, such as time course, fluctuation, laterality, those kinds of symptoms? And there are a variety of things that we would consider in terms of the history and assessment of somebody with adult uh, sensory neural hearing loss. I think in terms of, of associated symptoms or maybe time course, what I would say is the, the things that we're most interested in are, are, were there any sudden aspects to the hearing loss or was it just sort of a gradual, progressive, almost not noticeable progression towards the symptoms that led you to come see me or the, the, the doctor to begin with? I think that in terms of laterality, we're always curious to know whether are, there are any sort of asymmetric or, or symptoms that localize to one ear as opposed to the other. So somebody who can grossly determine that one ear is their worst ear is always something that would be a key point in the history for us. The same goes for associated symptoms such as uh, dizziness or, or tinnitus, which uh, the latter of which could also be a very uh, important asymmetric uh, symptom that somebody could have. Uh, but overall, I would say that the, the thing that we, we are probably most interested in is, or the things that we are most interested in are the, the presence of asymmetry, as well as the presence of a sudden episode of hearing loss, uh, durable or not, that has, has been uh, noted by the patient and the, the, their, their history of present illness. And from a resident side of things, we're often coached to ask questions uh, about dizziness, tinnitus. How do those symptoms play a role in this presentation, and what does that tell you about possible etiology of the hearing loss? And frankly, they're both very common things that we hear in association with the hearing loss, probably the tinnitus more than the dizziness. And it makes sense. I mean, as much as we, we don't understand tinnitus as a phenomenon, there are a variety of things that we actually understand fairly well, uh, both in terms of pathophysiology and, and just as in terms of, of the, the pattern recognition of tinnitus's association with hearing loss. Um, so the tinnitus is something that we believe in, in most cases is associated with hearing loss. And so it's a very common complaint that we would see in the adult patient presenting with hearing loss. As I was mentioning before, the presence of asymmetry in the tinnitus is a very important thing to note. If you look into your American Academy of Otolaryngology guidelines on the management and diagnosis of tinnitus, uh, there's, there are a couple of sections that deal specifically with that. But the presence of asymmetry or just unilateral tinnitus or things that 
kind of pique our interest in terms of the possibility that somebody would also have a causative etiology that maybe we can't see externally, but if we were to investigate a little bit more with, say, an MRI, we might find something there that would be a game changer in terms of how it is that we would approach that situation from a management perspective. Dizziness is something that we see a little bit less commonly, but in the world of, of neurotology, I would say that there's a pretty rich history of how it is that dizziness, tinnitus, and hearing loss could all relate to each other. And I would say most commonly that kind of falls under the auspices of what we would refer to as Meniere's disease. There are also other things like autoimmune inner ear disease that could play a role in that and some other things that perhaps we'll talk about later. But the presence of concurrent dizziness and specifically, I would say, true vertigo, so the actual sense that the world is turning, is something that would uh, pique our interest in terms of considering a diagnosis like Meniere's disease. And when getting your history, what other questions might you ask in terms of risk factors or other uh, historical aspects that might be contributing to this hearing loss? The history is one of the most important aspects of how we assess hearing loss. In some cases, the history is fairly bland and there's not a whole lot to go on in terms of what could be the possible etiology beyond just what we would consider to be presbycusis, but it doesn't mean that there's there's uh, not an importance to us making sure that we're asking all the appropriate questions. And so uh, when considering the actual breakdown of the history in a more granular sense, you know, there's the past medical history. So did somebody have a history of an infection that led them to possibly receive ototoxic medications? Did somebody have a previous trauma that conceivably could have affected their temporal bone and otic capsule? We talked about some of the concurrent symptoms that would be important to consider, but you know, maybe in terms of the social history, it would be important to consider did somebody work in a manner that would have exposed them to loud noise that could be associated with noise-induced hearing loss? Is there a family history that is suggestive of a potential genetic etiology to the hearing loss? Um, maybe radiation exposure that could have gone into a... Um, uh, a previous malignancy that was was treated with radiation as a part of their medical history as well. So there are there are a variety of different things to consider. And from the resident standpoint, again, when we evaluate these patients with hearing loss, we lean a lot on the audiogram to tell us about the hearing loss uh, and maybe sometimes uh, overlook important aspects of the physical exam. Could you tell us what we should be specifically paying attention to when we first evaluate these patients on physical exam? Just like the history, the physical exam is truly an important part of our assessment of these patients. I think on the external aspects of the ear, I mean, we want to see is just in terms of the, the formation of and, and growth of the ear um, from you know, conception on, is the ear well-formed, is, is it not? Is that suggestive of potential middle ear etiologies that could be uh, you know, part of what is the, the cause, causation of the hearing loss? And then working down from the external ear, is there anything in the ear canal that would impede the, the uh, progression or conduction of sound to the eardrum? Are there eardrum anomalies? Could we see acicular anomalies through the eardrum? Uh, is there something like Schwartz's sign like we would see in otosclerosis where the, the cochlear promontory perhaps has a reddish hue? All of those things are things that could indicate that perhaps there is a, there is a, a clearly... Um, identifiable, distinct etiology of the hearing loss, perhaps even in addition to something like presbycusis. Uh, there are other things that can be indicative of perhaps some of what we've talked about before. And so the idea that somebody could have had radiation in the past, I mean, you might see some of the external changes around the ear 
um, to indicate that the the temporal bone and, and the otic capsule has been affected by radiation changes. We can see skin diseases that would be indicative of a possible systemic problem that uh, would also be causative in terms of a hearing loss. Are there cafe au lait spots? Are there other craniofacial anomalies that are, are uh, visible? So there's a lot of things really to consider. But in addition to everything that I've just said, I think one of the most important things to your point about leaning on the hearing test is using a, a or performing a, a, t- a, a tuning fork exam. And so sometimes I feel like I look at the tuning forks and even get a laugh out of the patients on occasion about what we're doing with those. But I truly feel like the tuning fork exam, if nothing else, is a great way to validate what you're seeing on a hearing test. Sometimes the history and the hearing test don't match up. And like any diagnostic test, there's some wiggle room for error that's that's built into kind of what we accept uh, a hearing test to be. So performing a good tuning fork exam, I think also is an incredibly important thing. And next, I wanted to move on to pathophysiology and get into more of the details of what causes this disease process. But before we do, could you give us a quick overview of the anatomy, a little bit of the physiology of uh, what we should understand when we start to think about sensory neural hearing loss? Sure. So I think that it's important to consider, as always, um, with in our own minds and that of the the patients who we're, we're seeing and treating and, and educating the distinction between conductive and sensory neural hearing losses, there's a variety of different things that I mentioned previously that we would expect to cause sort of in and of themselves a, a conductive hearing loss, not a sensory neural hearing loss. And so I, I often find that that's a very important point to make. But when I think about the, the junction point between where the conductive mechanism is sort of tapering off and the sensory neural mechanism is becoming more important, I'm thinking of the, the cochlea itself, which is a, a remarkably elegant and intricate structure that is fluid filled and that is taking those vibrations from the conductive component and then converting them into a signal that can be understood by the brain. So when considering the cochlea, the sound is going into the scale of vestibuli, the sound is is, um, coming out in a sense of the scale of tympani. And then the scale of media is where a lot of the magic happens in terms of the inner hair cells uh, producing that neural signal or, or, or being a part of the creation of that neural signal uh, that then goes into the cochlear nerve, which then takes a, a remarkably complex pathway through the brain stem and into the brain. I'll oftentimes discuss with people, particularly those who have symptoms of, of tinnitus and hearing loss uh, that are, are curious to know more about the, the true pathophysiology of it, the, the pathway of uh, auditory input going from the cochlea to the brain, which is Something that, um, you know, is, again, probably not perfectly well understood, but something that, that truly is phenomenal. And I'll use the, the analogy that, that it's sort of like a local train as opposed to an express train, because not only is that, that signal being created and going to the brain, but there's a variety of different stops along the way at different places where uh, the, there's integration of that sensory input that's combining uh, what's happening in the right ear versus the left ear with the, you know, and so on and so forth as the sound signal goes to the brain. So uh, in terms of, of sensory neural hearing loss, there's a lot of different possible mechanisms, but hopefully that provides a, a bit of a framework for, for where it is that the problems could occur. And with that framework, I wanted to move on to the most common causes of sensory neural hearing loss in this patient population. Could you walk us through these three most common causes and give us a little bit of background and specifics around each? 
So three causes that I think are, are fairly common in our world are, are presbycusis, noise-induced hearing loss, and ototoxicity. I mean, those are three things that I feel like I see fairly commonly in, in my world in the adult patients presenting with sensory neural hearing loss. And so in terms of presbycusis, I mean, there's a, a very rich uh, amount of literature that's been written on trying to understand this subject, understand specifically where it is in the inner ear that we're seeing this problem uh, arise? Is it is it something that's happening in the stria vascularis? Is it something that's happening um, I- intrinsically in the, the inner or outer hair cells? And, and so there's a lot of great literature that's worth looking into. And even some, I'll talk with our residents sometimes, there's some great literature where people have looked at the histopathology of the temporal bone and tried to correlate that with uh, the, the actual appearance of an audiogram. Whereas um, you know, the classic presentation of presbycusis would be a high frequency sensory neuro hearing loss. There are, have been thoughts over time that, that there are different forms of presbycusis. But that being said, what we commonly see, uh, we, we most commonly see is presbycusis itself. And so presbycusis being something that most classically is a bilateral, symmetric, high frequency sensory neuro hearing loss. Uh, we can see varying degrees of difficulty with speech discrimination in a sense presbycusis is a diagnosis of exclusion. And so I think it's very easy to assume that somebody comes with that hearing, uh, hearing test uh, that they have in the, the, the history suggestive of presbycusis that they have it, but it's something that we, we always should be uh, arriving at in terms of a diagnosis after, in a sense, excluding other potential identifiable causes of hearing loss. But, you know, in terms of the, the impact of presbycusis, it's tremendous. And so the percentages of patients that have presbycusis is, is quite high. Uh, when you get up towards the, the end of the, um, the human lifespan. And so it's thought that maybe over half of people by age 75 have some degree of identifiable sensory neural hearing loss. In terms of the, the pathophysiology behind this, I mean, we talked a little bit about what happens in the, the inner ear, or what we presume happens in the inner ear and have, have documented happening in the inner ear. From a genetic standpoint, there's uh, been some discussion about whether or not there's a genetic predisposition for the phenomenon that we call presbytusis, the, the, the group of genes, the DFN group, though that's something that still is, is kind of a work in progress in terms of our ability to identify a clear genetic predisposition. Um, but, you know, presbycusis, I think, simply put to me, is, is a combination of, of two things. It's sort of what it is that you bring to the table genetically and what it is that you're exposed to from an environmental perspective throughout the course of your life. And so is it possible that um, from the environmental standpoint that there is some sort of atherosclerotic component? Is there... Uh, we talked about noise exposure, which is a little bit of a distinct thing, but are there dietary or medical comorbidity uh, considerations in terms of why it is that some people lose hearing faster than others or present at a relatively similar age with very different degrees of, of sensory neural hearing loss? Um, and so in terms of noise-induced hearing loss, I mean, that I would say is a, is a topic uh, in and of itself, but the idea of noise-induced hearing loss is that you've had some sort of acoustic trauma, uh, so a, a signal that has passed into your inner ear with such energy that it actually has caused an inflammatory response, so actual damage and then the, the body's innate response to that damage. Uh, I'd say what we, we currently 
what we what we believe with regards to noise induced hearing loss is that there can be a predisposition to damage in the outer hair cells and the outer hair cells being uh, sort of the the amplifier and fine tuner of the sound that makes it into our inner ear. Um, you know, there are there are it's it's not uncommon, I would say, in the practice of a neurotologist to see patients who have noise induced hearing loss, particularly, I think, uh, depending on where you work in the United States or, or thereabout, you might find uh, patients more commonly who work in a factory or in some sort of, of, of setting where they've been exposed to noise for a very long period of time. I oftentimes will talk with people about the, the OSHA guidelines or OSHA guidelines uh, for noise-induced hearing loss, uh, which I, I actually find difficult to remember off the top of my head. But generally, there's a, a, it's a pretty easy resource to look up to see exactly what those guidelines are. But the thing I think that's a key point that I reinforce to our residents is that it's not just a simple threshold of if you hear a noise that's beyond this, um, this intensity that you're going to lose hearing, but it's actually sort of a relationship between how low loud the noise is and how long the duration is of exposure. And so, um, but, you know, frequently, as I was saying, we'll see people um, with different histories of exposure, whether it be uh, machine work, whether it be gun use or chainsaw use or things of that sort. Um, I think over time, one of the, the positive things that we've seen in this world is the implementation of noise protection. And so we'll see people perhaps more commonly now than in, in years past that have earplugs that they're being required to use from a, a, in, as, you know, as an industry standard. So in terms of ear protection, you know, we can see people that are using earplugs, we can see people that are using earmuffs, and we generally expect that somebody can get about 30 decibels of protection. Interestingly, though, there's a thought that those things aren't necessarily additive so that you wouldn't necessarily see additional benefit by wearing both the earplugs and the earmuffs together. In terms of the OSHA guidelines, uh, there's not a, I, I find a perfect way to remember this, but it is something important to consider. And as I was saying before, there's actually a way, uh, there should be a very easy way for this information to be accessed and looked up. But um, probably if you were going to remember one thing, I think one way that you could kind of create a mnemonic for yourself is that, you know, the, the duration is something that kind of halves. And, and so it goes from eight hours to 15 minutes, where eight hours um, is is the the first point in time of exposure time-wise that you would expect to potentially see noise-induced hearing loss, or you could consider a hearing loss to be noise-induced. And so it goes from eight hours, four hours, two hours, one hour, a half hour, and 15 minutes. And then in terms of the, the actual noise intensity that you would hear, it starts at 90. And just with each increasing interval, it goes up by five decibels. So at eight hours, the, the um, noise intensity uh, that could go along with a noise-induced hearing loss is 90 decibels, four hours is 95 decibels, two hours is 100 decibels, one hour is 105 decibels, one half hour is 110 decibels, and 15 minutes is 115 decibels. And finally, could you uh, tell us some specifics about ototoxicity? What what are some of the commonly encountered ototoxic drugs uh, and Maybe also in the world of ENT, what are some medications that we use that could be ototoxic? Ototoxicity is a fascinating subject and one just like the ones before it that could almost be a talk in and of itself. And so ototoxicity is, is a general term for whenever something that we are putting into the body generally with a medicinal effect is actually damaging the inner ear. 
And so what we classically see with ototoxicity are aminoglycosides, uh, platinum-based antineoplastic agents, salicylates, uh, loop diuretics. I mean, those are things that I think most commonly, historically, we have good evidence to support that those things are potentially ototoxic. Um, what we're talking about when we talk about ototoxicity most specifically is probably damage to the outer hair cells and specifically damage that starts in the basal cochlea. And so the high frequency area of the cochlea, as I had mentioned before, the high, uh, the outer hair cells are incredibly important, uh, for the function of the cochlea as sort of the, the frequency tuners of the sound that comes into the inner ear. And in a sense, the amplifiers that allow the, the phase transition from the air of the middle ear uh, to not be a dampening effect any more than it has to be as moving into the fluid-filled inner ear. Uh, whenever we're, we're seeing ototoxicity, it's those outer hair cells that we think are most commonly affected. Uh, there are some medications that could have an ototoxic effect that's transient. I think salicylates are one of the ones that, it, I mean, it's nothing is, is so binary that it's always transient or always not, but we could expect that the, the functional... Uh, injury that happens with the outer hair cells and solicitate or, um, and aspirin use is something that that perhaps could be transient in some cases, whereas there are others where we would expect a higher probability that there would be a permanent uh, damage to those outer hair cells. In terms of what it is that that we use, uh, I think that that very commonly I worry about ototoxicity in the setting of putting an ototopical agent into an ear canal where there's a large tympanic membrane perforation. Some of the smaller perforations, some of the smaller tubes, I would hope that breaking the surface tension of that medication and it going through the, the tube or going through the, the hole uh, would be something that's hard enough to happen to where you might not be likely to see the ototoxic effect. But I'm generally very cautious and, in fact, avoidant when it comes to the use of things that are ototoxic in the setting of a potential route into the middle ear and uh, the reason being that we don't want to see the possibility that something gets into the to the inner ear and causes those damaging effects. But, you know, when considering the treatment of infections, gentian violet is something that's used very commonly. And gentian violet is something that that generally, at least in a variety of animal studies, has been demonstrated to be fairly ototoxic. Uh, we see the use of, of streptomycin still in, in ototopic or ototopical preparations. Um, and that's something that, that clearly can be ototoxic. Uh, there are some ototoxic things that are actually uh, preferable, and at least ototoxic effects that are preferable also are, are expected. And we talked about Meniere's disease previously, but there are some medica medications that have an ototoxic effect like gentamicin, which is preferentially vestibulotoxic, which is an important point. Not all ototoxic things are just generally ototoxic to the inner ear, but through a lot of, of history and evaluation, we have a great sense that there are some medications that are more vestibulotoxic than cochleotoxic or vice versa. And gentamicin is one that's actually fairly commonly used as a vestibular ablation agent in the setting of, of Meniere's disease, uh, which is which is vestibulotoxic that we use frequently to try to get that effect in our, in our Meniere's patients. And with these uh, three more common causes in mind, could you tell us what else you keep towards the top of your differential diagnosis when folks present with hearing loss? So, of course, there are a lot of things that we should be considering whenever we have a patient who's an adult with sensorineural hearing loss. 
as I talked about a little bit before, there are things that should jump out at us or that we would want to be uh, on the lookout for that are more historical in nature that could indicate that Meniere's disease is present or uh, autoimmune inner ear disease is present. And in addition to that, I mean, we were talking about asymmetry previously, uh, you know, there are a variety of different uh, so-called retrocochlear pathologies that could be considered chief among them, the vestibular schwannoma, uh, which is a benign tumor that affects the vestibular nerve, but also affects the eighth nerve in general, and also affects cochlear function. Um, so those are those are things that I would say that we're generally on the lookout for in terms of, of distinct etiologies than the, the more common ones. And one question that I like to ask is about the natural history of the disease, meaning what happens if this goes untreated? And at face value, I feel like you can say um, people continue to struggle to hear. But what are some of the other effects of untreated hearing loss? I like to tell people that, that hearing loss is, in a sense, part of the deal. And I say that as somebody who has hearing loss myself. And so in terms of natural history, on some level, given the wear and tear that affects our body everywhere, we might all expect that just if nothing else, the environmental exposures of the world are, are enough to cause us at some point in time to experience some degree of hearing dysfunction. And if not that, then perhaps something more on a processing level in terms of the pathways that I were talking about before that could create a sense of hearing loss that maybe isn't clearly demonstrated on a hearing test. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the natural history of hearing loss, I think generally when we see it, there's, there's a pretty decent chance, um, at least in, in the world of presbycusis, that it would be gradually progressive in things that have a more distinct uh, history of exposure or a history of a sudden loss, it's a little bit trickier to, to speculate what's going to happen with that hearing loss. But the hope would be that at least in terms of the actual effect of an exposure, say to an ototoxic medicine, that there's a point in time whenever the hearing loss occurs and that as time goes on, the probability that there's going to be additional damage from that exposure is, is pretty low. So um, in terms of the effects of that, I mean, they're tremendous. And so people suffer with hearing loss. It's, I think, one of the things that makes uh, cochlear implants as wonderful as they are is that uh, when you consider the, the sensory deprivations that we can have throughout the, the five principal senses that we have, you know, the hearing loss is a, is a tremendous burden on the people that suffer it. And so to know that we have something at the end of that, just philosophically, I think it's a comforting thought, hopefully, to every human in existence that might suffer from hearing loss. But in terms of the primary effects of what we might see, and so I think first and foremost is our safety issues. And so um, just from our own personal experience, we actually have... Um, uh, natural disasters where, where I'm located that, that can involve hurricanes and tornadoes. And so when you consider how it is that somebody could be awoken in the middle of the night and uh, to tell them of sort of impending disaster as it relates to a natural disaster or, or a weather-related phenomenon, I mean, very often there's an auditory alarm that there's some sort of sense of of noise that that alerts you to the fact that something is happening and so if there's a fire if there's a doorbell if there's an alarm i mean those are things that that you wouldn't necessarily be able to hear as well as you should with hearing loss i think in terms of what we'd consider to be secondary effects of hearing loss i mean one of the biggest concerns that people will have when they come in is is employability which hopefully is something that as time goes on we get better at mitigating as i was saying in terms of the the um the 
rehabilitative options that we have as hearing aids and cochlear implants have evolved. I think there's a lot of great things that we can offer to people, but employability can be a problem where people have lost so much of their hearing that they actually are unable to maintain the, the level of performance that's expected of them at their job. Uh, independence is another big one. Uh, isolation is, is probably one of the most uh, devastating ones, both for patient and provider. I mean, when you consider kind of our role as otolaryngologists, as communication specialists, the fact that somebody loses their ability to effectively communicate is truly at right smack dab in the middle of the heart of what it is that we do. So that's a, a particularly terrible one to see. And one of the things that is becoming a hot topic or not even becoming is a hot topic in our world are the, the relationships between hearing loss and cognitive decline. And so um, one of the things that I think a lot of research is focused on in that world now is how it is that the cognitive effects of hearing loss uh, could be potentially mitigated by the use of some sort of hearing rehabilitation, be it a hearing aid, being a cochlear implant. And so I think the verdict is still out on just how much that we can affect that, that potential relationship between cognitive decline and hearing loss. But I think that um, what I'll say to people is that out of all the factors that would influence cognitive decline in terms of when it happens and how it happens, hearing loss might be one of the biggest modifiable factors of cognitive decline. So it's something that we clearly have to be very tuned into. So once a patient presents to your clinic, um, they probably already are presenting with an audiogram or maybe it's pending, um, but say they don't have one. Um, what is your workup for this patient? And we can start with the audiogram. What are you looking for on the audiogram and what are some uh, key aspects of the audiogram? So the audiogram, I think, is a critical part of our evaluation. I mean, there are things that, as I mentioned before, that we should be doing on our own end to to go along with and evaluate the history of, of somebody's hearing loss or the physical exam. But the audiogram provides us with one of the most important objective findings that we have that can can uh, help us in the, the assessment of somebody who presents with hearing loss. And so in terms of the audiogram, I, I generally will break this down to patients as there being three principal components, which is, is an oversimplification. There's a lot of very important things that are happening in an audiogram. But one of the, the first things that actually jumps out to a patient with most audiograms is the big graph that's on the front. And that is an assessment of, of truly sound perception. So if meaningful hearing is both sound perception and sound understanding, that graph that you see, which can be two graphs if it's divided into the right and the left here, like ours are, but there are still a, a, a lot of folks that will have it all on one graph that are testing the perception threshold of pure tone sounds. And so looking at it and looking at the little lines you might see on the, the, uh, the vertical sense, and so numbers on the x-axis are associated with the vertical lines, it's like keys on a piano keyboard. Um, again, this might be a little bit of an oversimplification, but it's, it's just, I think, a helpful way to sort of think about it. And, and it's a, something that I explain to our patients. And so what we're doing is we're, we're using pure tones of sound. And by pure tones, I mean a specific frequency of sound. And then when you look at the horizontal lines on the audiogram, those correlate with a certain sound intensity. And so we take a pure tone, let's say 250 hertz, which is a very low frequency sound, and then we play it louder and louder until the sound is perceived and which, at which point in time a mark is placed. And we do that across uh, not the entirety of what we would expect the human ear to be able to perceive, but, but quite a bit of it. And that gives us a sense of whether or not sound perception is impaired. And then the second part of what we're doing is kind of getting to the second 
point of what makes up meaningful hearing, which is sound understanding. And so we're using uh, validated lists of words in most cases, and, and depending on what the evaluation is for, there can also be sentences that we're using, uh, which provide a little bit of context. But in, in essence, what we're trying to do is to see beyond your ability to perceive a noise, is, is it possible that you don't understand the noise or that there's something that's happening in the transmission of that signal from the ear to the brain that's garbling the signal enough to where it becomes more on the nonsensical end of the spe spectrum. And then the last thing that I think that we, um, you know, in terms of breaking down the hearing test into three principal parts that I think are, are very important is the, the tympanogram. And so that kind of gets to more of what we see on the, the physical exam. But, you know, there, there are aspects of how it is that the, the conductive mechanism of hearing can be uh, rendered less functional than they should be that are things that would show up on a, temp a tympanometry. And, and so in terms of our measuring emittance with an eye, um, the, the process of a tympanogram can give us a sense of, of pressure dysregulation under the, under, under the, under the eardrum in the middle ear. Uh, it can give us a sense of, of, in some cases, a secular dysfunction, uh, where there is enough stiffness in the ossicles that we don't see as much movement in the, the tympanic membrane. And we can actually see the opposite where there's a secular instability or discontinuity, which leads the tympanic membrane to be more uh, movable, I guess. That's probably not the best word. Uh, we can see a secular discontinuity uh, or instability that, that, leaves the, that makes it so the tympanic membrane is less stiff than what we would expect. And are there any specific audiogram patterns that might clue you into the etiology of hearing loss? Oh, absolutely. So I think, as I mentioned before, one of the first things to focus on is the distinction between a conductive and a sensory neural hearing loss uh, or the presence of both of those things. But when considering sensory neural hearing loss, I think historically and, and to the present day, we, we consider presbycusis to be something that can have a variety of different effects, but probably the most common thing that we see is high frequency sensory neural hearing loss. So the so-called ski slope, uh, excuse me, the so-called ski slope appearance of the pure tone thresholds where low frequencies are relatively preserved to, to the high frequencies, which are more affected. So in addition to that, what we can see is a notch at 4,000 hertz, or the so-called 4K notch that can be indicative of noise-induced hearing loss. There's the so-called cookie bite hearing loss, which is uh, actually more of a middle frequency in terms of the spectrum of what we test on an audiogram uh, hearing loss. And so relative normalcy or, uh, or at least thresholds that are less affected at low and high frequencies and more effective at, at, at mid-range frequencies, which can be indicative of a congenital, uh, potentially even infectious etiology in a um, uh, congenital sense. Uh, we can see upsloping or low frequency hearing losses, most commonly in Meniere's disease. And so ones in which the lower frequencies of sound have been disproportionately affected relative to the higher frequencies of sound. So sort of the opposite of the classic ski slope audiogram that I, I refer to in presbycusis. And do you regularly obtain imaging in this kind of classically presenting elderly patient with sensory neural hearing loss? I do not, but there are uh, some fairly good guidelines on how we should approach that question. I think that it's not uncommon just from a, a philosophical perspective, from an emotional perspective, uh, 
even when people come in with hearing loss who are, say, very bothered by tinnitus, that they really want us to get imaging to evaluate. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is we are, we are in a wonderful place when considering the past hundred years with what we're able to identify. But that being said, we're also not so sophisticated that we can identify uh, with simple diagnostic tests, the etiology of many forms of sensory neural hearing loss. And so, in other words, we would actually expect in many cases that that imaging might be um, negative, which in a sense is reassuring if we don't find any clear causative etiology. But um, I would say that there are certain patterns of hearing loss that might make us more likely to pursue imaging. And generally, in terms of conductive hearing losses, which um, is maybe a little bit apart from this, uh, a CAT scan or a computed tomography is something that's very valuable to us. But when we're talking about sensory neural hearing losses, I would say that, that the MRI is generally what we're considering. And when considering the MRI and the patterns of hearing loss that would maybe be uh, more indicative of something we would see on an MRI, probably the two most common things are a sudden hearing loss or a, an asymmetric hearing loss. The definition of a sudden hearing loss that is classically used is uh, 30 decibels of loss at three frequencies occurring over about a three-day period. Um, and so that's something that that is worth evaluating for sure with a MRI. And what we're looking for, as I said before, is something that fits into the general category of retrocochlear pathology, like a, like a vestibular schwannoma. In terms of asymmetry, that's a little bit trickier. And so asymmetry, there's, a, there's actually a variety of different definitions for asymmetry. And I think depending on whether or not you're interested in finding every possible evidence of retrocochlear pathology, or you're more interested in just having a higher uh, probability of finding something whenever you're you're doing the MRI or whenever you're ordering an MRI, you could have two different guidelines. But the general guideline, I think that's that's perhaps most commonly accepted is having two consecutive frequencies with a 15 decibel asymmetry when comparing one ear to the other. But those are, I would say, the most common reasons that we would order an MRI. But as I, I referenced the American Academy of Otolaryngology guidelines as well, there's also evidence to support that we would get an MRI in the setting of asymmetric tinnitus. Though from a probability perspective, I would say that it's less likely that that is going to yield uh, a positive finding or something that's clearly the, the etiology of the hearing loss. And now considering treatment, uh, there are two main treatment options for hearing rehabilitation, including hearing aids and potentially cochlear implantation. Could you start with uh, describing to us how you counsel patients on hearing aids who is generally considered a good candidate for hearing aids and what are some pros and cons to pursuing that treatment option? Of course, you know, hearing aids are, are wonderful devices. I, I mentioned cochlear implants before because I think that they're wonderful and I'll talk about them in a second. But I think that the progress that's been made in the cochlear implant world shouldn't overshadow the progress that's also been made in the world of, of hearing aids. And so hearing aids are are wonderful options for probably the majority of people that experience adult onset sensory neural hearing loss. And I think historically the conception of a hearing aid is that it's one of those big cones that you put up to your ear. And so it's very ostentatious and, and it's just going to make all sound that you hear louder. And that's going to be a, a terrible thing because maybe you want to hear sound X better, but then you're going to also hear sound Y better. And that's going to be bothersome to you. But in reality, I would say that hearing aids have evolved so much that that they almost, I joke with people, give them an unfair advantage in today's world. They're smart. They're they're discreet. 
um, the hearing aids can interface with a variety of different electronic aspects than we, there are a lot of different electronic devices that we have with us. When considering the appropriate patient for a hearing aid, I think there's, there's can be a little bit of, of, or at least in my world, I, I am not infrequently surprised by the people who benefit from hearing aids and want hearing aids, and then people who don't benefit from hearing aids or don't want hearing aids. But the general sense is that you know, there's there's a consideration of what's technically aidable, and and historically speaking, um, the the definition that I have gone by is if you are able to to score above fifty or sixty percent in terms of your word recognition, which was one of the aspects of the the audiogram, then there would be a thought that putting an amplifier on your ear would make it so that you're amplifying enough good signal to where you would get benefit of it, from it. Now, I, I think that that's a generality, it's not necessarily true for, for every patient because we do see people that actually have less word recognition who are very happy with their hearing aids. So I think you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. But I think that, um, you know, considering the pure tones of what's aidable, 75 decibels and low frequencies, 90 decibels and high frequencies, uh, some of the, the, the cons of a hearing aid. I think that uh, in today's world, many forms of the sophisticated hearing aids that I'm talking about are very expensive. And so it might be problematic in terms of access. Um, and some of the, the physical, uh, physiologic cons of a hearing aid. And so when you're considering some of the hearing aids that actually occlude the ear canal, there can be a problem with what's called the occlusion effect, where you're actually blocking some sound out while amplifying other sounds. And so that can be problematic. We see people really actually fairly routinely in our clinic who have such a hearing aid who also have inf- uh, infectious issues where the actual environment of the ear canal is changed by the constant use of a hearing aid that blocks the ear canal. And so they're developing bacterial and fungal infections as a result. Uh, so those are all things that I think are important to consider in terms of the pros and cons of hearing aids. Um, you know, I, I, there are people still, despite all of that, and despite the counseling that we provide that, that have, um, uh, such a uh, negative reaction to the hearing aid once they get them that they become non-users, which we try everything we possibly can to avoid in terms of how we structure our counseling between the the neurotologist and the audiologist. I'd like to think with appropriate counseling, the rate of non-use is actually fairly low. And I'm very hopeful, as I imagine many people are, that as um, as we kind of evolve as a society, the stigma associated with hearing aids, where people would assume that a hearing aid means that you're elderly and nobody wants to have that particular stigma is, is perhaps diluting a little bit over time and becoming less significant. But uh, we still see that as, a, as an issue as well. And you mentioned cochlear implantation. Could you uh, tell us some of the pros and cons of uh, cochlear implantation and who is a candidate for this procedure? Yeah, cochlear implants, though, I'm very biased. You know, I, I would consider to be the most incredible, sophisticated, and, and successful neural prosthesis device ever discovered, invented, created by, by humanity. And so as I referenced before, I think one of the best parts about cochlear implants is that when you consider um, kind of the, the end result, the end of the line for sensory deprivation in any sense, you know, we actually have an answer whenever people have lost hearing, whereas with sight, with taste, with smell, um, there are definitely great answers and wonderful things happening in those worlds. But cochlear implants, uh, for a variety of reasons, have, have really gotten off the ground in terms of, of uh, neural dysfunction in that sense. And so 
the, the person that I think in a general sense is a possible candidate for a cochlear implant is the person who comes into you who's tried a hearing aid, maybe tried multiple hearing aids that just isn't happy, isn't satisfied. And it's for reasons that have to do with their hearing acuity. And so, I mean, we can see a lot of people that are dissatisfied for a lot of reasons, but the person who's struggling with what you would consider to be the best fit hearing aid is the person that, at least in my world, should go to be evaluated for a cochlear implant. And so when you consider that evaluation, it's a fairly systematic thing. And so per the FDA at this point in time, cochlear implantation uh, is considered whenever somebody has presented in the world of, of let's say, presbycusis. Uh, with less than 50% understanding in the ear that's the worst ear, so the ear that's potentially to be implanted, which in, in our world, I would say in a general sense is the worst ear, and then less than 60% understanding in what we would consider to be their better ear. And again, this is done in the best aided condition. So it's actually a test to be distinct from a traditional basic audiogram hearing test, which can involve little inserts that are put into the ear um, or headphones, the, the evaluation for a cochlear implant is something that involves the patient wearing the best possible fit of hearing aids on their ear. So the FDA is creating a, a labeling for the cochlear implant, but an important thing I think to consider in our world is that beyond that, there's the question of, does your insurance company follow that labeling? Does your insurance approve the use of a cochlear implant? Uh, or in other words, will they be willing to pay for the implant? Because uh, the the issue with cost, even though hearing aids is kind of a unique world and how insurances cover it and don't cover it, uh, perhaps more commonly don't cover it, uh, cochlear implants, if it were to be not covered, if somebody were paying cash, is, is really in, in the overwhelming majority of cases a, a prohibitive enterprise. So it's very important that the insurance company buys into it and that you're meeting criteria for it. And so one of the, the notable... Uh, deviations from what I said that the FDA does is actually CMS. And so Medicare, it's a lot less in terms of, of what somebody can hear, or at least the residual auditory function has to be less. And so what Medicare's criteria are at this point in time is that patients have to have a moderate to profound hearing loss in terms of their pure tones, and they have to be able to understand less than 40% of what they hear in the best aided condition. Cochlear implants are, in general, they're wonderful devices. Um, I think that in terms of pros and cons, the biggest pro, as I was saying before, is that it's providing an option for people that historically have had no option. And the option's pretty good. We expect there to be very good function with a cochlear implant in the general sense. We expect people to resume a lot of their, their normal activities. Um, but the cons with it, as I'll be very distinct with people, is that it requires a surgery. And while that surgery has become something that we can do in less than an hour, and it's an outpatient procedure in most people, it still is a surgery. And so not everyone is a candidate for a surgery from just a general medical and physiologic perspective. It's not a light switch. And so even though it's using electricity to, to stimulate the auditory system, it's not something that you just put into somebody and then all of a sudden they wake up and their hearing is just like it was when they were younger and it presumably was better. Uh, so it requires a tremendous amount of work and effort on the part of uh, the cochlear implant team, which in our world is a, a cochlear implant surgeon, a cochlear implant audiologist, uh, speech pathologist, potentially. I mean, there's a variety of different people that, that contribute for the whole spectrum of auditory rehabilitation from hearing a noise to having that noise be tuned to, um, you know, the oral rehabilitation that that ultimately make the cochlear implant as successful as it can possibly be, which is different than um, 
you know, perhaps what somebody would expect with a surgery in which maybe we do the surgery and shortly after their hearing improves. So we, we expect some degree of improvement, but there also is a, a process that we would expect people to go through. And finally, could you speak a little bit to quote unquote hidden hearing loss, a patient who presents and doesn't objectively have hearing loss on an audiogram, but is really bothered by this uh, hearing loss that they perceive? Yeah, it's, it's a both fascinating and troublesome phenomenon that we see in our world because it's, it's, I would say increasingly, it's, it's more common that I'm seeing these patients. As you said, the hidden hearing loss is somebody who presents with uh, in most of their, if not all of their objective evaluation, indicating no discernible hearing loss in terms of their, their pure tone appreciation or word discrimination or sound understanding. And uh, the thought process behind this is perhaps more in line with what I was saying before about the complexity of that auditory signal going from the inner ear to the brain. It's not just the express train that goes right there. And so if, as long as you hear it in your ear, it's, it's interpreted by your brain and that's that. But there's a variety of different processing things that happen in route. And so in the brainstem, in terms of how it is that sound is integrated with um, uh, sound from one ear with the other ear. And so it's possible that in that fashion, that there are people that, that don't have a measurable hearing loss in terms of how we measure it, but are still suffering in some sense uh, with regards to their appreciation of sound. I th I'd say most commonly where I get this complaint from patients or this, this uh, concern from patients is with regard to sound and noise. And so folks that seem like they're doing fine in a quiet room, but as soon as they go into their favorite restaurant with all of their friends, they become uh, more... Uh, or they have a greater degree of difficulty in terms of their ability to, to hear and understand sound. Well, Dr. Sweeney, thanks so much uh, for this discussion regarding adult sensory neural hearing loss. I wanted to move on to the summary, but before I do, is there anything we didn't talk about that's worth mentioning or anything you wanted to illuminate? No, I, I think that hearing loss is at the core of, of who we are as neurotologists uh, in, in so many different ways. And I think that uh, hearing loss is a tremendous burden to the people that, that suffer from hearing loss. And I think that there's quite a few of those people, especially when considering the percentages that are associated with hearing loss as, as we age. I think that, as I, I referenced before, we really have wonderful rehabilitative things to help folks with hearing loss. And I, I truly believe that um, as time goes on, that we'll, we'll only get better in our abilities to rehabilitate hearing loss. And so I think that as much as hearing loss is, is, a, is a dramatic burden on the people that, that suffer from it, um, I, I feel like the message that I try to give people whenever I see them is one of hope. I think that there's a lot out there that we can do to help. And um, I, I work with, with we work with our patients, we work with our referring doctors, we work with, with our friends and families to make sure that nobody is suffering unnecessarily uh, whenever they're, they're experiencing a hearing loss. Well, thank you so much. Uh, in summary, uh, adults who present with hearing loss often present with gradual onset multifactorial disease, which includes presbycusis and possibly a history of noise exposure. The most common causes of adult onset sensory neural hearing loss are presbycusis, noise-induced hearing loss, and ototoxicity. Hearing loss is most commonly due to injury of the inner or outer hair cells, depending on the mechanism of injury, and workup mainly includes an audiogram, but CT or MRI might be warranted depending on the clinical situation. Treatment options include hearing aids and cochlear implantation if hearing aids do not pro provide enough benefit. 
And treatment of hearing loss helps in many ways, including from a safety standpoint, improving social function and employability, as well as possibly uh, deterring cognitive impairment in a subset of patients. Dr. Sweeney, anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you so much for having me. It was really an honor to be here. Appreciate it. I'll now move on to the question asking portion of our time. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, wait for a few seconds to give you the opportunity to think or press pause, and then give the answer. So the first question is, what are some of the effects of untreated hearing loss? As we discussed, there are some primary effects, including safety issues, such as not being able to hear a fire alarm, a doorbell, a telephone, or other things that could be a warning of a possible disaster or something going on in your surroundings. In terms of secondary effects, there's reduced employability, reduced independence, and social isolation. And we also talked about the possible link between hearing loss and cognitive impairment. For our next question, what are the OSHA guidelines for noise exposure? As Dr. Sweeney said, this might not be the easiest to remember, but might be worth trying to come up with an easy mnemonic. And that's by starting at eight hours of duration with a 90 decibel uh, noise exposure. So at eight hours, it's 90 decibels. Half that is four hours and increase five is 95 decibels. Two hours, 100 decibels. One hour, 105 decibels, and so on. And for our next question, Describe some commonly seen audiometric patterns and what they typically represent. So for presbycusis, we will often see sloping high frequency hearing loss or the ski slope pattern. A 4K notch is usually noise induced hearing loss. The cookie bite pattern is usually congenital hearing loss and the upsloping hearing loss is more associated with Meniere's disease. And for our final question, what is a good rule of thumb when considering what patient would be a good candidate for a hearing aid? When considering offering a hearing aid uh, to a patient or considering who would be a good candidate for a hearing aid, word recognition scores of 50 or 60% are generally considered uh, better for hearing aids, where if it's lower than that, they uh, might not gain as much benefit from a hearing aid. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.